Our text this morning is a lengthy one. It is a summary of a sermon and the response that follows as Paul and Barnabas continue their mission work that we saw them undertake last week. This morning we'll be looking at Acts chapter 13 from verse 13 to 52. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Sidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus 
So also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am, work, I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would teach us from Your Word that you would remind us of what is important, that you would show us your own heart and will, O Lord, that we too, like David, might be a people after your own heart, seeing your will and doing it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, especially in times of economic difficulty, there is a movement among companies. There is a movement among families. There is a movement among societies. And it's a movement to get back to basics. To try and do a few things well. To try and shave off things that are holding us back or using precious resources. To commit ourselves to the basics. And so you see companies 
divesting themselves of operations that are not in their core business. You see families making sure that the main things are the focus of their lives. This is something that the church needs to do often. And we've been looking at it in the book of Acts. We looked last week at the church and its response to missions and the way it should be committed to missions, that missions is a fundamental part of the church and its mission. This morning we will see perhaps what we might call the basic of the basics. If missions is a basic, then this is a basic of missions. How do we bring the gospel to others? You see, the early church in Acts was committed to these things. They were committed to the mission. They were committed to preaching the gospel. They were committed to evangelism. There was not a lot of fluff and fat around the church in Acts. They had to be lean and mean, as it were, because they had a huge task in front of them. They were called to bring the message of God to the entire world. Now, if we think about it, for the most part, most people in that church didn't even know what the whole world was. The smallest among our children now can go look on a globe or dial up Google Maps and can see places far away that we have never visited and may never visit. But here the church in Acts has a daunting task in front of it. And so as a result, they're committed to the basics of the mission that God has placed before them. We need to learn from this as a modern church, because you see, Jesus' church and his mission has not changed from the days of the Bible. Cultures may have changed. Technology may have changed. But the mission is the same. And so what I would like us to see here this morning from our text are three things. First, the declaration of the gospel. How Paul and his companions took the gospel to the world. Then secondly, we will look at the heart of the gospel. What is this gospel that Paul and his companions declared? And then third, we will see the response that they get to the gospel. I think this is especially helpful to us as we think about what the responses will be to us as we bring the gospel to others. So the declaration of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, and the response to the gospel. Let's begin then at verse 13. We see here now there is a change in our narrative. Up until this point, if you look earlier in chapter 13, this band, this merry group, was described as Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul did this. Barnabas and Paul did that. Barnabas and Paul did the other thing. And now here... It is Paul and his companions. You notice the shift. Paul is inevitably taking leadership of this mission because he was especially commissioned by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. This is a little thing, but it reminds us that God is working exactly as he said he would. It's also a reminder to us to be patient. Do you know how long it was between the time God told Paul he would be his special vehicle, his special servant to the Gentiles, and this point in time? More than a decade. 
Could you imagine waiting more than a decade for a promotion? Waiting more than a decade for that thing that you want for Christmas. Imagine that, children. You ask for a scooter or a game or a baseball glove. And mom and dad look at you and they say, that would be great. I'll get that for you oh, 11 years from now. Ooh, that would be hard to wait for, wouldn't it? You see, Paul had to wait that long to see God working in his life. Sometimes I think we get impatient. And this is a good reminder to us that God takes his time to use us in his mission to build his kingdom. But that time does come. And so Paul and his companions, then they sail from Paphos, as you Recall, they were on Cyprus, and they come to Perga in Pamphylia. Now, Perga is on the coast of Turkey. The, we might call it the southeastern coast, right about in the middle of the bottom border of Turkey. And they would come, and they would land here at Perga, and then John departs for Jerusalem, but they move on to Antioch. Now, this is not the Antioch that we have been looking at. There are no less than 13 Antiochs in this region. So they're very hard to get apart, to tell apart. So that's why we spoke of Antioch in Syria. And now this is Antioch in Pisidia. It's a different Antioch. It's an Antioch right in the middle of what is now Turkey. And in order to get there, Paul and Barnabas would have to go across hardships. And I think this is another reminder to us of their commitment to declare the gospel. You see, we read this and we think, well, Paul and Barnabas traveled. They went from one city to the next. And we perhaps think of how we travel. We get in an air-conditioned car and we put in CDs or movies for the kids and we drive. And when we're tired, we pull off to a rest stop or we get some food. And we take... These trips, a really long trip might be, you know, a two or three day car ride. But for Paul and Barnabas, this two sentence traveling involved going across some of the highest and most treacherous mountains in the region. A place where you could fall and kill yourself. A place where bandits and robbers would be found. You see, they did this because they were committed to bringing the gospel. Now, why did they pick Antioch in Pisidia? We don't know. Some have speculated that perhaps Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul we met last week, had relatives in this city. There were a large number of Roman veterans and Roman citizens. And perhaps he asked, perhaps he begged Paul and Barnabas to bring this good news that he had found to his relatives. Perhaps they thought it would be a good place to set up a base of operations. Perhaps the Holy Spirit prompted them. But whatever happened, they had a desire to declare the gospel of God. And so they were unafraid of mountains, unafraid of robbers. And as we'll see in a minute, they were even unafraid of the reaction of the Jews, a reaction that would become all too common. So Paul and Barnabas go, and they go into the synagogue. That is where they begin. And I love this wonderful view of God's providence. You do know that there is nothing such as luck. There is no chance or luck. 
God is in control of all things, working all things to His will. And so we see that they come into a synagogue and just as by chance as it would be, the leader of the synagogue looks out and he says, does anyone have a word they'd like to share? Oh, how about you, sir? You're dressed like a rabbi. He just happens to pick Paul. Now, Paul is not shy at all. Paul doesn't say, oh, no, surely not. There's someone else. If you give Paul any chance to tell you about the gospel, you had better buckle up because Paul is going to let it all hang out. You recall from Philippians, one of the things that he did was he preached to the guards he was chained to. Paul could not help but declare the gospel. It's why he was involved in missions. He wasn't in missions because he wanted to bring up the living style of the Antiochans. He wasn't involved in missions because he saw great injustice from the Romans in Asia Minor. He was involved in missions because he had to declare the gospel. And what does this declaration look like? First and foremost, it is a declaration of God's work. Declaring what God has done. Do you see this here beginning at verse 17? I want you to just notice the subject and the verbs. God chose, God made, God put up with, verse 19, God destroying, God gave, God gave, God gave, God removed, God raised up. Who's driving the story of history? Now, I've given you staccato subject and verb, but I've just described... Paul describing centuries of the history of Israel. From the Exodus to David. And who is Paul talking about? But God. You see, God is the actor. God is what is declared in the gospel. And this is so counter to our modern methods of evangelism. So often we think that if we are going to give someone the gospel, if we're going to evangelize, what we must do is tell them about us. How bad we were. How good we've become. How fulfilled our life is. All of the things that we desire to do. But you see, the gospel to Paul was not about Paul. He had one humdinger of a story. The gospel to Paul was about God and God acting. And it's interesting, he learned from Peter. You remember Peter preaching? You remember Stephen preaching to the Jews? They always began with the history of the Jews to draw the Jews in. You can imagine these people in the synagogue, they're sitting there and they're thinking, this man can really preach. He tells us about the Exodus. Oh, and how we destroyed the nations in Canaan. Oh, and how God rose up Samuel and David. Oh, I love David. Don't you like the stories about David? The stories about David are my favorite. And they're building up, and they're building up. And then in verse 23, Paul does something unexpected. And it's even sharper in the Greek than the English because we're required by English grammar. 
Paul has given them the history of God acting, and he says, of this man's offspring, that is David, God has brought to Israel a Savior as he promised. And then the very last word of the sentence that Paul says is Jesus. You see? That name would come out of nowhere at them. There's a Savior. Oh, yes. He's from David. Oh, yes. God has raised him up. Oh, yes. He's Jesus. What? He catches them flat-footed. He tells them that all of their history, all the things that have been done, lead up to Jesus. You see, all of the things that God has done, all of the things that they acknowledge, everything that is important leads up to Jesus. Do you see the way in which he brings them the gospel? They can't get away from it. They know all of the good things that God has done. They love all of the good things that God has done. And now they are confronted with the fact that the purpose of all that they know and love is Jesus. So they're confronted with Jesus. And they can make one of two responses. They can want to know more about him or they can push him away. Because, you see, Paul will not let them get away from Jesus. The gospel that he declares is about God's work, but it is Jesus-centered. He reminds them of this, that Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. Jesus is in Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is in Psalm 16. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus is in Isaiah. I have made you a light to the Gentiles. Everywhere you go, Jesus is in the Bible. This is why it, it, quite frankly, befuddles me. Those who are modern Bible scholars will spend all kinds of time poring over the Bible, trying to find all kinds of things, and they'll miss Jesus. They'll want to know the obscure food habits of various tribes of Canaan. Or which way a certain river flowed in a certain time. But they pass over Jesus. This is the declaration of the gospel. It is declare, to declare that God is at work and that Jesus is at the center of it. And if we're honest, that's a pretty simple story, isn't it? My guess is many of our youngest could tell that story. What's the gospel? God is at work. And he's at work to bring Jesus to us. This is the declaration of the gospel. What is this gospel that needs declaring? Why did Jesus need to be brought to us? Why did God work? What was his purpose in Christ? Paul reminds us of this in the heart of the gospel. And we see it in three things. That the gospel, first of all, is for everyone. Secondly, that the gospel requires faith. And that third, the gospel brings forgiveness. This is the heart of the gospel. If you want to know how to do evangelism, this is a good outline to start with. First, that the gospel is for everyone. Now, do you see who Paul preaches to? He says in verse 16, Men of Israel... And you who fear God, listen. The men of Israel are, of course, the Jews. Those who fear God are people like our good friend Cornelius, 
who was a Gentile, but who was called a God-fearer and who would sit in the synagogue to learn more about God. And so Paul begins by preaching to both of them. We know he's preaching to them because he makes a hand motion, Luke tells us. Listen. You see, from the earliest days of preaching, hand motions, perhaps Paul was Italian, I don't know. But hand motions were used to get attention. And he wants attention of everyone, both Jews and Gentiles. He says this not once, but twice. Look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. The gospel is not just for Jews, not just for Gentiles, but for both. He could have called the meeting of the synagogue to executive session, I suppose, if he had desired. Move the Gentiles off and simply spoken to the Jews. Or perhaps he could have thought, the Jews won't listen to me, so I'll wait till they leave and then I'll speak to the Gentiles. But you see, the gospel is for both of these groups. It's for everyone. And who are these Jews and Gentiles? What do they represent for us? You see, you may never find yourself in a synagogue. No one may ever come up to you and said, hello, I'm a God-fearer. But you will find yourself amongst these two groups of people. You see, the first, the gospel is for those who are supposed not to need it. That's the Jews. The gospel is for those who think they don't need it and who others think they don't need it as well. You know who they are. The upstanding citizens. The people who have their life all together. The people who don't seem to have any rough edges around their marriage or their families or their children who work hard at work, who strive to be good in their community, but who just don't really have any time for Jesus. They don't need Him. And the sad thing is that many of these folks are found in the church, just as they were found in the synagogue in Paul's day. But the gospel is for those who think they don't need it. They need to be confronted with Jesus to be shown that Jesus is their only hope, the only way of salvation, that they cannot do it by themselves. But the gospel is also for the Gentiles. It's also for those who are thought to be beyond the reach of the gospel. You know who they are as well. Those are the people that we're just not quite so sure would enjoy sitting in church or don't happen to live in the right neighborhood, or don't happen to know where the book of Jonah is in the Bible, who aren't patient, perhaps, who it would just be easier to do ministry if they would get out of our way. You know? This is whom the church is supposed to reach. Those who think they do not need the gospel and those who think they are beyond the need of the gospel. And both of these groups, Paul confronts, because the gospel is for everyone. The second thing that Paul reminds us is that the heart of the gospel is that the gospel requires faith. Now, what do we mean by this? Look with me, if you would, at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. 
Now this is designed to perk their ears. Brothers, God-fearers, to you and to me has been sent a message. And it's a special message. It's a message of salvation. Do you need hope? This message is for you. Do you need strength? This message is for you. Do you need forgiveness? This message is for you. What is this message that it has been sent to us? It's a message that we can only be saved by the work of Jesus. It's a message of salvation that comes by Jesus, and we must embrace it. Those who live in Jerusalem, Paul tells us, and their rulers, they rejected it. They found no value in it. And so therefore, they sent our Lord Jesus Christ to His death. They carried Him off and they took Him down and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him up. And so Paul calls upon you and he calls upon me to believe that Jesus Christ could not be contained by death. That Jesus is so powerful that God raised Him up and He freed us from all that bound us. God raised Him up from the dead. We who are His witnesses now are witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, He has now fulfilled to us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And so in verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from their worst habits. The things that are just really annoying. The things that stop them from having their best life now. Is that what your text says? They have been freed from everything. Everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is Paul saying that the one who believes is freed from every sin. Do you think your sin is too dark, too deep, too secret? You know, the kind of sin that you have, that you all have, that I have, that you won't share with your spouse, you won't share with your friends. You won't share with your pastor. It's the kind of sin that you think, I just hope God was scanning quickly and missed it. Maybe I caught a break. That kind of sin that you're afraid to bring out into the open, afraid to confess to God because you're afraid God will reject you because of it. Paul says there is hope for that sin. You can be freed from everything. Now, this word freed is a word that means much more than being liberated. It's actually the word for to be justified. You see, what Paul is saying is you can be justified from everything that you could not find any justification in. You can't find justification in the law, Paul says. Everything that the law of Moses could not do, believing in Jesus does. And so we need to be reminded of this. I think especially as those who are committed 
to church, committed to the Scripture, committed to gathering together, committed to our professions of faith, we need to be reminded that nothing justifies but Jesus. Your church attendance will not. Your love for your wife or husband will not. Your educational prowess will not. The harmony of your family will not justify you. Your keeping of the Sabbath will not justify you. Your honesty and integrity will not justify you. The only thing that will justify you is Jesus. You see, because as hard as you try, as hard as you try to keep the truth, a lie always sneaks out. As hard as you try to love your brothers and sisters, something will happen and you will get an angry thought in your mind. Someone will cut you off in traffic. Someone will trip you. Someone will fail you. And sin will catch you. You cannot keep the law. That's what Paul's saying. And so as we come to Jesus, we must remember as the starting point that the law is not the starting point of our journey in Christ. It must begin with Jesus. We must believe on Him, and that brings to us the forgiveness that we can find no place else. And this is a crucial message of our gospel, that the gospel actually brings forgiveness of sin. You know, we talk about often how the gospel changes us. And that's true. But other things can change us, can't they? Three jelly donuts a morning will change us. A hobby that we know and love will change us. It'll change our priorities. Young folks, marriage will change you. Aging will change you. All of these things change you, but they are not the change of the gospel because the change that the gospel brings about is not just that we are different, but that we are forgiven. That is the hope for us. That is the hope for the world. This is the message we bring. Our message is not about poverty. It's not about social action. It's not about politics. It's not about anything but that Jesus Christ brings forgiveness by His finished work to those who believe Him. Everything else is on the periphery. It's not unimportant to care for the poor. It's not unimportant to care about how our nation is governed. But none of these things are the gospel. None of these things are what define us. The gospel, the heart of the gospel, is that we believe on Jesus and we are forgiven because of what He has done. This is a radical thing because as much as you hear in the news fighting amongst Democrats and Republicans, progressives and conservatives, rich and poor, union and company, as much as you hear about that, any person you have a conversation with would much rather talk about the merits of cap-and-trade or TARP or the tax code or anything other than the challenges of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? 
You have a conversation about our Lord and things get kind of awkwardly quiet. Because you see, the challenge of Jesus is a true challenge. There are only two kinds of responses that we can see. I've said this to you before, but it is true at all times. With the gospel, you cannot be Switzerland. You cannot sit on a cloudy mountaintop, eating chocolate, looking at a clock, untouched by all of the circumstances that are around you. You cannot be neutral with the gospel. And we see that here in this passage. There are two kinds of reactions. There is either a reaction of unbelief or a reaction of belief. The first reaction we see is a reaction of unbelief. Paul has warned his audience. Now, this unbelief that appears here in verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So they were not satisfied with merely saying, Paul's wrong. They weren't satisfied with using the relative philosophy of the age and saying, well, you know, Jesus might be good for Paul, but he's not good for me. No. They react violently. They revile Paul. Revile, kids, is an old big word for made fun of, spoke bad about, teased. You see, they didn't just go after Paul's message. They went after Paul. They said things like, oh, come on. This guy never studied his Old Testament. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about at all. He's a fool. He's a fairy tale dreamer. Do you ever feel like that? That people talk that way about you? Because you don't believe in the clear, logical, verifiable proof that we rose from apes who in turn rose from amoebas, who in turn rose from proteins, who got there, we don't know how. And yet we are made to seem like we are the intellectual midgets. When the philosophy that is behind that is completely empty and barren. You see, Paul faced this reaction from those who did not believe. It's a reaction he warned them against. Not once, but twice. He said, don't be like the leaders in Jerusalem. He said, don't be like the scoffers in Habakkuk's day. Believe on Jesus and be saved. But you see, they didn't believe. There's something else in Paul's sermon that's helpful to us on this. I think sometimes when people don't believe the gospel that we give to them, we are incredulous. How could they not believe in Jesus? I especially hear this from children. How could these people not believe in God? How come they don't believe in Jesus in the Bible? And we scratch our heads and we say, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. Paul knows. God said he was going to do a work. And what kind of a work was he going to do? A work that when even if we were told, verse 41, you will not believe it. That's how spectacular a work God is doing. Everything is in His hands. And so when we face unbelief, we should not be surprised. It is one of the reactions that will come from the gospel. 
And this unbelief spreads to violence and hate. You see, the unbelievers can't convince other people to stop believing because God has a hold on them. So they go to the next step. They begin to threaten Paul and his companions. They drive them out. They're violent. This is something we see every day today. This description of unbelief is exactly what happens in the Muslim world. Right now today as we speak, there is a young lady who is under sentence of death for converting to Christianity. Because that's Muslim law. You see, unbelief drives to violence and hate. This is one of the responses to the gospel. It happened then. It happens now. We should be no more afraid of it than Paul was afraid of it. Paul will go to the next town and the next synagogue and to the next town and to the next synagogue because he knows that not only will he get the response of unbelief, he will get this second response, the response of belief. He preaches the gospel. And the first thing that is a very good sign is he has real seekers. He doesn't have the kind of seekers that they have to manipulate the music and the lights and the speaking and the people and the colors. He's got people as he's leaving the synagogues grabbing his arm saying, would you please tell us more? Just a little more. Please. And these people, Jews and Gentiles alike, come to know and embrace the gospel. And they believe as many as were appointed by God they believe on Jesus and they are saved. But the story doesn't end there any more than your story ends with the moment that you believe. You see, this gospel that we declare, this gospel that has at its heart justification by faith and forgiveness of sins is something that we must stick with. Why must we stick with it? Do you know who Paul is preaching to here in this town? Luke has kind of kept the cat in the bag on us. You'd have to know a bit about Roman history and geography to know that Phrygia and Antioch in Pisidia is in a region. It's a bigger region, a colony, a province of Rome, and it has a name that is familiar to you. Its name is Galatia. Paul is bringing the gospel here to the Galatians. The same Galatians that he will respond to later in a letter and say, grab onto the gospel and never let go. Because you need it as much now as when the day I first brought it to you. This is the response we must always give to the gospel. We must always believe. We can never be slack. The gospel calls us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, a response that flows out of the response of belief we see here at the very end. In the midst of all the trials and struggles that they have, seeing Paul and Barnabas thrust out from the city, the disciples have another decisive response to the gospel. You see it in verse 52? They were filled with joy. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
You see, this is what the gospel also calls us to. Gospel joy. It's the kind of joy that not only makes us joyful, but that it's the same kind of joy that brought Paul and Barnabas to Antioch and will take some of their disciples to other places. It's a joy that we have that we must share this gospel with others. And so it comes full circle. Those who hear the gospel believe they are filled with joy and they must declare it to others who hear the gospel and who believe and are filled with joy and they must declare it. This is how the kingdom of Jesus Christ expands. And it doesn't require a monolithic budget. It doesn't require a laser light show. It doesn't require a great ability with PowerPoint. It only requires openness to the work of the Spirit, responding to the gospel in faith, and having the joy that brings it to a world that needs it. For Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Let's pray.